You like listening to podcasts like Franchise Flicks, etc.? Welcome to Franchise Flicks. My name is Ted, and joining me are my co-hosts, Andy and Zach. On this podcast, we task ourselves with watching movie franchises, breaking them down, and reviewing them, including franchises we've seen and love, as well as franchises we've never seen and frankly avoided. Today we're talking about what I like to call the Shyamalanaverse, the series that wasn't a series back in 2000, but suddenly became one after just one scene in 2016. This series includes 2000's Unbreakable, 2016's Split, and 2019's Glass. So we usually like to start off all of our episodes with talking about our experience level with whatever franchise we're talking about. Uh, So this one's kind of weird, and we'll get into that as far as it being a franchise in the series. But uh, Andy, why don't you start us off with your experience level? So I definitely hadn't seen the last two movies the first one i remember pieces of it so maybe it was something i originally saw on tv back in the early 2000s when it came out but definitely something that i wasn't like oh this is one of those m night Shyamalan movies that i really want to watch and see again or whatever um and i kind of had a lot boiled from the movies later on uh thanks to when 2016 split came out um didn't really care for this new franchise that was starting um and so like it was okay to like hear about these oh it ties back to unbreakable well i don't even remember what unbreakable is um but it was something that i was still excited to get into for this podcast because i think it's um a rather unique way of entering into a a franchise movie so um, i was excited for it but didn't really have a lot of experience until this point uh what about you zach i so um, i wasn't really aware of this of unbreakable even until i actually watched split when it first came out i saw split in theaters and I, and since i saw it it's 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 been one of my kind of go-to rewatchable movies actually um you know we we uh, my wife and i watch it uh, not all the time but with you know we've seen it more than once you know um so we really liked split and so watching that uh got me interested and i did go back and watch unbreakable a couple years ago um, but I never got around to watching Glass. But I found Split and in, in, in Unbreakable and the the relationship between the two really compelling. So when we were talking about doing this episode, um, I was pretty excited to, to finally finish the series out and kind of see where it concluded, because I really do, uh, you know, I, I like the, um, the kind of unique nature of this series, you know, in that when Unbreakable came out, it didn't, I, I, at least I don't think, maybe there was something that Shyamalan has said before, but I don't think there was really a plan to make this into uh, a franchise or, you know, a series of movies. Um, so th- th- that in and of itself is kind of interesting. Ted, what about you? You know, I have memories of Unbreakable. I think I must have watched it with my parents at one point growing up. Uh, they would always... Uh, rent dvds in fact uh they were one of the few people who had netflix when it was just dvds for a while oh you got just, the mail oh yeah three dvds in the mail 
uh, every time, and uh, you just send one back, and they send you a new one. And uh, they actually still do it. Um, I don't want to put them on blast, but they use the streaming service, but they're kind of in the Stone Age a little bit. They're getting Blu-rays now. Gave them a Blu-ray player, but not many people do the disc. So, uh, but anyway, uh, so Split, I saw right after it came out, and uh, I thought it was a pretty good movie. I enjoyed it from a horror thriller aspect, and it was pretty interesting. And but when I saw the end credit scene, like I knew the reference to Unbreakable, but I couldn't remember a single thing about it other than Bruce Willis was in it, and that was really it. And that uh, kind of hip hop beat at the end of it that's the same as the one at the end of Unbreakable, but really that's all I could remember. And then Glass obviously just came out a year ago, so um, you know you don't really even get the inkling that they're making a series, like you kind of said, until you watch that very end scene of Split, and they're just kind of like saying, here you go, this is a series. So just kind of getting into it, and uh, it's kind of interesting the way they went about this, but it works in some ways and doesn't in others, but we'll get into that. Well, before we really get into our discussion portion of it, we'll uh, go into the synopses for each film. So I'm going to start here with Unbreakable. Meet David Dunn, an absentee husband and father played by Bruce Willis, a sometimes absentee actor. While on a train, his train crashes and he's the only survivor, miraculously coming out unharmed. Soon after, he receives a mysterious note asking if he's ever been sick. The note leads him to a man named Elijah Price who was born with broken arms and broken legs and was aptly nicknamed Mr. Glass as a child. Inspired by comic books, Price believes that there has to exist a polar opposite to him, a man who is unbreakable. Roll credits. He believes David to be that man, but David's skeptical. His beliefs are challenged after realizing that he may have empathic abilities that manifest when he touches other people's hands and that he can bench more than the average bro at the gym. His son Joseph is completely convinced, though, and so badly wants to tell all the kids at school that his dad can beat up their dads that he tries to shoot David to prove his invulnerability. Uh, let's see. After talking Joseph down, David tells Price to fuck off and that he had pneumonia as a child after almost drowning. This leads Price to suggest that David hid his abilities to lead a normal life, and that water must be his weakness. David finally puts his abilities to the test at the train station, brushing against the hands of several strangers, which is something that would be really ill-advised today in 2021. Just saying. Uh, he sees that one man he touched killed another man, and is holding the wife and kids hostage, he follows him, saves the kids, but is attacked by the killer, falling into the pool and starts drowning. After that, he's saved by the kids and proceeds to choke the killer to death, saving the family. He then meets with Price to thank him for his belief in him. After shaking hands, it's revealed that it's revealed to David that Price is a supervillain terrorist who actually orchestrated the entire train crash and other disasters in his search for to find his counterpart. So Price officially adopts the moniker Mr. Glass and tells David that he was meant to be his arch nemesis. Then David anticlimactically rats on Glass 
and he's subsequently thrown in, into an institution for the criminally insane. So that'll do it for Unbreakable. Would you like to read Split, Zach? In Split, uh, Casey is a teenage girl uh, who's a bit of an outsider, and she gets a uh, pity invite to a classmate's birthday party and uh, is offered a ride home by the birthday girl's father. Uh, when they were getting in the car, the father is attacked by uh, by like outside, you know, uh, by the trunk and the girls are abducted by a chloroform wielding skinhead. They wake up as cap captives in a windowless room and they learn that their captor suffers from dissociative identity disorder. The host to these personalities is named Kevin, who is abused by his mother and his mind splintered to create 24 separate personalities to shield him from what they what they call the light. The girls are tormented by three personalities that include the forever nine year old Hedwig, uh, Dennis, who suffers from OCD and has a uh, pretty weird thing for teenage girls and Miss Patricia, a middle aged British woman. These three, along with the mysterious beast, make up what is referred to as the Horde who wish to seize full control of the light from the other personalities. They explain that the girls are meant to be fed to the beast as they are impure. Meanwhile, psychiatrist exposition machine Dr. Fletcher becomes concerned with the number of session requests she's receiving from Kevin's personalities. She's a strong advocate for people with DID and explains throughout the story that she believes some personalities may be capable of superhuman feats. She finally decides to investigate Kevin's home and discovers the girls are being held captive, but it's too late as the insanely strong beast has seized the light. After creepily crawling on the walls and ceiling, he crushes Dr. Fletcher to death and devours the other two captives while Casey attempts an escape. After a terrifying chase, the beast corners her in a cage and begins to bend the bars with his superhuman strength, but he stops when Casey see or when he sees Casey's scars that indicate that she is also a victim of abuse. He tells her that she is pure and the broken are more evolved and leaves her. When Casey is found, it's discovered that she was held captive underneath a zoo where Kevin worked. She finally takes action against her abuser and tells the police about the years of torment she suffered at the hands of her uncle. It's a pretty heavy story. Um, it is. You know, especially it, it really, compared like, watching to it. Unbreakable is not nearly as heavy as this one. So no, it, it, it's, a, it's a super heavy story. It's a little so. jarring just looking at these synopses and like I I could joke a little bit about Unbreakable but this one was a really tough it's one a, it almost seems a little inappropriate to do so for Split right yeah but yeah well, there that, are definitely some lights in it though but yeah so let's let's talk about Glass Andy yeah so if that was a hard pill to swallow let's get into this one uh, which <laughs> is takes those two things and smashes them together so here we go the the final act of the Shyamalanaverse Glass uh, David Dunn has been serving vinci- vigilante justice and is actively tracking the horde. After brushing against Hedwig, he has a vision of four girls held in a warehouse. David finds the girls and frees them, but is soon confronted by the beast. The world's most anticlimactic fight ensues as the man who crushes his victims to death attempts this on the man who cannot be crushed. 
The two fall out of a window and are met by armed guards and Dr. Staple, uh, who wants to treat what she says is their psychosis, the belief that they are superhuman. They're admitted to the Raven Hill Psychiatric Facility, where Dunn is held in a cell surrounded by several high-pressure water hoses, and the Horde is kept at bay with hypnotic lights that draw out a different personality each time they are activated. Also at Raven Hill is Mr. Glass. Dr. Staple works to sow seeds of doubt in their minds of David and the Horde about their abilities, but Glass has other plans. He tells the Horde that he believes in the Beast and that he wants to break them out to show their abilities to the world. He then tells David that he and the Horde plan to destroy Osaka Tower. After Glass and the Horde break out, David now on the reinvigor- David now with reinvigorated belief in his abilities breaks down the door of his cell. This leads to another fight between the Beast and David with Joseph, Casey, and Pr- Price's mother as the spectators. Joseph reveals that Kevin's father was killed in the same crash that David survived and that it was orchestrated by Glass. The Beast wounds Glass and after this revelation uh, and wants to finish the fight at Ahsoka Tower. Casey stops him from going by drawing Kevin's personality out, but Staple takes advantage, having Kevin shot while the Beast is at bay. An armed guard then takes the opportunity to drown David in a puddle while Staple reveals that she is part of a secret society tasked with eliminating the threat of superhumans. The event ends with the deaths of David, Kevin, and Mr. Glass. Staple, believing that their existence will never be revealed to the masses, discovers that Glass orchestrated the entire event, has it filmed, and sent the video to Joseph, Casey, and his mother, who then leak the footage to the world. Glass. Now that's a Shyamalan twist. Yes. Hell yeah. Now that's a Shyamalan twist. But also, do you think we should start putting spoiler warnings ahead of these episodes? No. <laughs> we just spoiled the whole franchise. <laughs> I'm sorry. I mean, who listens to a movie podcast where people are going to be talking for a while about a movie and thinks that we're not going to spoil it? <laughs> I'm just kidding, but it was a really good, good description of the of the story. So that that's the whole trilogy. That's it. That it is. Uh, well, now that we've gotten the plots and what actually happens in the meat of these movies, let's get into the discussion portion here. And I want to start off with some acting and character work. Nobody is better than James McAvoy in Split. I just can't say enough about how he is playing multiple characters and you believe him because his facial expressions and his mannerisms and not so much the voices, sometimes the voices with like characters like Hedwig, who actually sounds like a nine-year-old kid with kind of a lisp, but when he's doing Miss Patricia, it's more like a James McAvoy accent more than anything. But Dennis is a pretty good one, too. It's kind of just a standard American accent. Uh, It's just amazing, though, more so than anything, the facial expressions that separate all of the characters. You see the shift when you look at his face, and it's just incredible. It's a masterclass. Well, even further, because he is flipping between all these personalities, you can even see... De- uh, Dennis, for example, within Barry, 
of the, who, you know, he's trying to portray the like he's he's portraying Barry that is pretending to be Barry by Dennis. Like it's just like these layers of uh, of personalities. And he just you you can you can see with these little nuancey things that he does with his mannerisms and his his speech and his facial expressions, everything like you, you know that, oh, this is not Barry. You know, it's not Barry. You know, it's either Patricia or Dennis pretending to be Barry. And like he just pulls it off so, so well. Yeah. All of the, all the James McAvoy praise for the first split. Absolutely. Yeah, it, that's a good point. Having that layered performance there when uh, he's trying to pose as Barry when he's with the shrink. Well, we can talk about some not so great here, too, uh, and that would be Bruce Willis playing David Dunn. Um, you know, Bruce Willis, I, I know from his uh, reputation, he, he can sometimes uh, turn it on and other times he just kind of sleepwalks through films and uh, Unbreakable wasn't as bad as he was in uh, Glass. But in general, it, it's just one of those classic head scratcher Shyamalan performances, uh, kind of like what you get from Mark Wahlberg in The Happening, where you're like, are these people? Are these actual humans? Because they don't feel like they're exuding any human emotion. I don't know. What do you guys think of him? I think Bruce Willis uh, is like a, a character actor where he has to play a tough guy. And I think that's maybe what was happening in the first movie. Um, I the third movie glass he he's just checked out bruce willis is earning a paycheck at that point i i don't think we can say he is the same kind of actor he was in the 80s and 90s um if he was even doing i don't know what he was doing in the 80s but i think like his performance in unbreakable works for what that character is it's like a, a tough guy who doesn't want to be the tough guy so he comes across as very passive kind of like not caring and it, it actually it works i think um counter that with what we see in glass it's that same character but now it's also portrayed by the actor that we know is checked out so i think it just it doubles down on that in a, a not so good way um where had it been maybe a, a better bruce willis a, a decade later nearly two decades later um yeah two decades later it, it would have been a much better performance i think yeah i mean he just grunts his way through both of these movies he does. He he. There there doesn't need to be any dialogue from him. He essentially just nods his head the whole time, and, and now, yeah, and that's it. Those are his two main lines. <laughs> that's it. It's like he so just doesn't. True. He's got nothing going on in you know the 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 vocal category. It's yeah. so weird. It's such a weird character. Yeah, he seems like a husk of a human, just kind of meandering along like uh i don't know like, like a ghost who cannot escape what it's doing uh kind of like in another Shyamalan movie uh the sixth sense where he ends up being dead at the end of it it's almost like he transitioned his character from that like right into this i think it was way better in the sixth sense obviously but this came out right after the sixth sense as well this was like the height of Shyamalan powers was uh being able to just ask all the actors he just had in his one movie to be in the next movie right. and right. same guy scoring the movie 
Yeah, he he likes to keep his uh, people around him for sure. Yeah, I mean, the one redeeming thing about his character is that it does kind of lend itself to um, the, the 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 plot and some of the the you know the themes of the movie is that you know he he wakes up not happy every day because he decided to be something that destiny kind of had a different idea for him. And because of that, he's now this shell of a human being, you know, rather than reaching his full potential as, you know, this meta human, you know, uh, super being. So like it's dull as he is, it does work for the character. Yeah, that was like kind of my point is that it, it makes sense in the first one. And then the second one, it just kind of or the third one where we see Bruce Willis again as the character. We know as the audience, this is not the same Bruce Willis. We've seen his more recent movies. They're not that good. This is an actor that's checked out. And now you've got a character who in some ways is a lot checked out, too. He doesn't really want to do the things in the first movie. You now he's he's hesitant to take on this greater task for himself because um, he, he has doubts and all those normal character flaws that you would expect in this type of superhero eventually. So I think it it works just a shame Bruce Willis has to check out um, from being an actor in the past decade. Yeah. Yeah. He's certainly his acting is aged like milk. Um, (laughs) Got to make money. uh, Well, a standout in two of the movies is Samuel L. Jackson as Mr. Glass. I loved him in the first one as he obviously ends up having that big twist at the end where he is the supervillain. He is the one who orchestrated everything, but kind of similar to uh, the psychiatrist in Split, he is the exposition machine in that movie until it's revealed that he has a deeper character arc going on on top of that that's the the real twist is he could easily be seen as a plot device and then he transitions into something much more than that because it seems like at at the beginning he's just searching for somebody who is the total opposite of him the unbroken man but how he's searching for that you don't really necessarily know i know i think you zach said that that was one of the more uh easy to spot twists for you. I really didn't see it coming myself. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's why this movie was named glass instead of unbearable. Uh, It's like it, it, at the end, you really, you realize that this was all about glass the whole time, you know, and, and it, it contextualizes really the whole series you know from this one twist like you can you can look at it in hindsight and and see some um some evidence of what it was all leading to and and i i think i did kind of get it towards the towards the end you know knowing that this was kind of glasses coming out party um so I, I didn't think it was a super unpredictable twist, but I I think it redeemed the movie in general. Are you talking about Unbreakable or Glass right now? Glass. Glass. I was I kind of talking more uh, Unbreakable at first because I, I think you would put in our notes the that... terrorism thing. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that that too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, knowing that I mean, there has to be a villain. 
right you know who's really the villain like the you know the robber wasn't the 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 major villain because it has to be a villain and it's usually somebody with some spotlight you know and and being kind of this meta comic book storyline you know the reveal's coming at some point you know it, who it probably is at least in my opinion i thought it was relatively obvious of kind of at least who it was if not you know how he did it you know yeah i think for me it was more of the how uh just because i couldn't see it obviously like with context clues going into this we knew glass was part of this and uh just from some pop culture knowledge i guess i know that mr glass is the villain uh I didn't remember, though, from watching the movie when I was younger, how he was the villain, what exactly he did. Before that, if you're going into that movie blind, I think it could be easy to see that he seems like an exposition machine until the very end. But he does have to have a motivation, obviously, for finding that person uh, and a means to do it as well. So it makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, he was a perfect cast for this. Samuel L. Jackson in like in the in the early two the late nineties, early two thousands. What a gem! He carried it right he's over. Still a phenomenal actor today. Oh, I, I agree. Absolutely, I was, and that's what I said. Like he carried he carried it right into you know uh, glass. He's one of those actors where you can point to and say he's in everything, but you're not upset about it by any means. It right. It improves whatever he's in, or at least keeps it as good as it's going to be. Um, uh, that's why you give did, the man a purple lightsaber. Absolutely. Well, purple lightsaber, or you put him in a movie called Snakes on a Plane, uh, and that becomes a cultural phenomenon uh, for maybe no other reason than the line that he has in the movie, um, which I don't know is appropriate enough for our podcast, but like... Oh, it absolutely is. Like, okay, yeah, so there, I'm sick and tired of these motherfucking snakes on this motherfucking plane. Yeah. Or the goddamn snakes on his motherfucking plane. Oh, 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 yeah, it might be. You might be. Right. Can't but, remember what. It's, but like he is. Yeah, I think so like, iconic. <laughs> <laughs> so iconic. But to the point that like of actors in this movie, Samuel Jackson or trilogy, he is by far, I think, one of the, the standout, even more so than James McAvoy. I know he like he definitely carries a, a masterclass performance in acting in the second movie. But I think when you look at the overall trilogy, Samuel Jackson is the number one actor um, in it that carries the not carries, but uh, stands out on top of the movies. I could agree with that. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree with that. With that. Uh, you know, probably should have touched on it. But James McAvoy is good in glass as far as what he's doing as an actor. But when it comes to how it's executed and it just kind of seems like M. Night Shyamalan had the idea like, okay, we said in the last movie there are 24 personalities, so there are a lot more personalities we haven't even met, so I'm just going to kind of shoehorn them in here and just have him go from one to the other to the next to the next, and like the whole thing with the light actually works as a, within the plot, but as far as that is concerned, it kind of got a little annoying actually whenever they switch personalities each time it was a little overdone and it wasn't 
nearly as impactful. It didn't have like that dark feel to it like it did in the first movie in Split. Uh, so it, it kind of diminishes a little bit when you get to Glass. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just think his role was um, uh, not as impactful as it was in Split. And I think that that had a lot to do with how you perceive the character in that movie. I think I had favorite personalities. Was it too? Like, uh, cause I'm, tr- when I was reading your guys' notes on it and see like, Oh, yep. You kind of like, don't like these um, last two movies compared to the first one. Um, and you talked about James McAvoy's performance in particular. I think what I, then I noticed to myself was that I liked certain personalities better. Like I liked when there was the, the conflict between Miss Patricia um, and uh, what's the other main dude. Dennis, uh, Dennis or Hedwig. Dennis, yeah. Yeah, Dennis. Like I liked it. Hedwig annoyed me. Um, the whole little kid in the lisp thing and etc. Um, saying that with every line, but at least like the like the dynamic between Dennis and um Miss Patricia, I really liked that part. Uh, and then there were like any time we got the actual character to come out. Um, now I'm blanking on his name too. Was it? Oh, Kevin. Kevin Wendell Kevin. Crumb. Yeah. Kevin Wendell Crumb. That's Don't say that full name. Say that. Um, but like I think. It was because then, like you guys said, we had 24 characters that we we're supposed to know. The third one, they're like, OK, let's introduce, you know, some of the other ones in a little more detail and hog up the time. And I didn't really care for that. I wanted the characters that they did show us in the last one that I did like. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I will say I did like Hedwig. Uh, I just thought he was fun. Uh, I love that he uh, kept saying that he went from Kanye being his main man to Drake being his main man in the next one and the, the whole et cetera thing. And like, the, just so childish too. When he kisses Casey, he's like, that's my girlfriend. You know, that's my girlfriend. Just, I don't know. I, I grew up around kids like that and it was kind of funny to see that. Um, but I could see where he'd get annoying. Uh, I definitely like the carryover, but I will just say last thing on Hedwig is that he, he was his role again. I think it all comes down to the role. His role was perfect and split. And then they just overused him in uh, in glass. You know, uh, I think there were more like they hardly saw any of Dennis in in glass, you know, and I think he's definitely a more interesting character. So I wish they went that route. But, you know, anyway, it's 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 it, it, there's a lot to talk about in it, because like James McAvoy plays a lot of different characters. It's really kind of fun. Yeah, I honestly don't know how he was not nominated for awards for that performance in Split. I, I just not for anything. I not, feel like maybe even not that I know of, but I guess I'm not really a reward show junkie either. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. Hmm. I agree. I think you should. I can tell Andy's looking it up. So while he's looking that up, <laughs> we'll, fi- we'll find out shortly. <laughs> yeah. While he's looking that up, though, let's talk about a character who interacts a lot with uh, the Horde and Kevin and all of those personalities, and that's Casey. She's like one of the most compelling characters and actually uh, almost as much as uh, Mr. Glass. She doesn't have as much screen time, but in Glass, she actually steals a little bit of the spotlight from him, I think, especially when she's able to use that abuse and that weirdly developed relationship with Kevin and the rest of the personalities, like including the beast, like the beast actually lets her go in split because he sees that she is pure, so to speak, and has suffered abuse like he has. Uh, So he considers her more evolved. 
So like that relationship between all of those personalities and her is really compelling. And it, it ends up being the doom of Kevin and the rest of his personalities because she is able to disarm him so much, but she turns her abuse into a strength and is able to help somebody else in some way, shape or form through their abuse in a way she wants to seek out Kevin and the rest of the personalities and help them rather than everybody thinking that she should want to stay away and want nothing to do with him after what she went through. Yeah. It's almost like a, what doesn't kill you, get you makes you stronger vibe. Speaking of Kanye. Um, but, uh, she, her, yeah, her whole arc is really interesting. You know, especially when we meet her, she's just this kind of enclosed, um, you know, very introverted outsider um, that just doesn't fit in anywhere. And and you kind of get the sense that there is something behind that. But as especially in Split, as the movie goes on, you start to kind of rip apart the layers, um, you know, both in both in, you know, literary context. and and physically as well, you know, you see you you see her character develop, um, but you also like she's you know when 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 she's captive in the room, she's she has to take off her shirts one by one, eventually leading to where you can actually see her scars, um, and that last layer is what reveals to the beast that she is. Um, you know, uh, she is just like him. She is, she is pure. She has overcome her abuse or she is, she's experienced abuse and she has now an enlightened sense of what the world is. Um, and so that, that whole arc and split, I thought was great. Absolutely. Um, I also thought it was interesting, uh, just the kind of juxtaposition between, the two abuse characters, both Kevin and his personalities and Casey, the way they manifested uh, certain things through their abuses. Like you see Casey and as a child, she has a rifle in her hand and is on the verge of shooting her aggressor. uh, Like, but she ultimately puts it down and kind of internalizes everything and just kind of keeps it on the inside and keeps this cold exterior on the outside. Like they talk about at the beginning of the movie, they didn't want to uh, invite her to the birthday party, and she's always getting detention. And you see as the movie progresses and you learn about her abuse, oh, well, clearly she's getting detention, so she doesn't have to go home right away to the abusive uncle. And, you know, she's distant from everybody else because she's going through abuse and she has nobody to talk about it with, nobody to go to. And she feels like she's trapped because her uncle is her guardian, which is super fucked up. Um, But then you've got Kevin Wendell Crumb and his personalities. And instead of kind of just keeping it to yourself and keeping this tough exterior, instead he manifests these personalities and they protect him from the light or pretty much the outside world, the reality of the world. And, uh, you know, that they help him to get through life. But unfortunately it seems like it's to his detriment too, because when we first see Kevin, he thinks it's 2014 when he wakes up, he hasn't been to the light in so long. So he's really being kept from it rather than protected, uh, from, 
the outside world by the other personalities. It, he does get protected in some ways, but I just thought it was really interesting the dynamic between the two abused characters and how uh, your abuse can shape you in a way. I think that was like the whole point of her character in some ways was to like show us that your traumas in life can lead to like good things, resiliency, overcoming. Um, because it's like set up at the beginning where the two other girls that get captured, they kind of like have this, oh, we got to do something right now. We got to act. And um, uh, Lacey's like, no, we got to wait. We got to hold out. We got to plan. Uh, you're just, I'm trying to get the reaction out of the name calling. Um, it's not Lacey. It took know, me a second. That's the point. That's the point. But I was going to let you go, but I, I had to, I had to throw it in there. But ultimately, she, we get to the point where you realize, like, no, the things that like she's doing are probably the more intelligent decision. She's actually able to get out in the end, and then finally, um, it's her own, literally her own tragedy, which is the thing that saves her. Because without that she would not have been able to get away. She, the beast would have killed her just like the other girls. So your trauma can turn into uh, something greater for you ultimately. And then the opposite of that is James McAvoy's character, who's kind of the, the negative side. So when you have your trauma, that can lead to more demons and more tragic things later on. Uh, how you deal with that as an individual ultimately determines who you are in the end. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, and she, Casey, you know, immediately shows you her acuity and, you know, resourcefulness and intelligence right from the start, you know, especially compared to the other two girls who you, you can tell are, you know, they're, they're separated, you know, between, from, there's something different about Casey and these other two girls. And, and, you know, throughout the story, you realize it, but th from the start, Casey really shows her her maturity that we then find out is is kind of uh, at least in part uh, a result of her her trauma and former abuse. Yeah, and uh, I think that also goes back to one of the flashbacks, uh, one of the very first ones I think uh, before like the abuse is known is her dad when hunting talks about how you know women are smarter and stronger than men. Uh, it, talking specifically about the the doe versus the buck and that's why uh the buck is the most often killed and everything like that and that goes into just her strength throughout the movie and ability to just survive he talks about how women are survivors more than anything and i think that was a big message in this movie as well and uh then she parlays that like i said into in glass trying to help somebody who is suffering because of abuse rather than see the negative in what he and his personalities did to her. She literally tries to reach out to him uh, against everybody else's uh, wishes and what they would think would be a good idea because they just see on the surface, this guy with multiple personalities abducted you, killed your friends and almost killed you. Well, you don't know the half of it here, uh, why he let me go and all this stuff. So it's really an awesome character arc and a really good character in general that uh, they were able to put in there when you really didn't know what you were going to expect when you get three teenage girls thrown into a position like that. You could just as easily get more often than not 
three girls who are in panic mode and have no clue what they're doing and would not be able to survive that at all. Yeah, and that's almost the exact reason why at least the, you know, the other two girls were targeted from the beginning. Right. Yeah, she just kind of was along for the ride, literally and figuratively. Right. Right. You know, speaking of, um, well, I, I guess we can get to that in a minute, but um, I, kind of off the line of Casey, I, I do want to talk about Dr. Um, in, in Glass. What's her name? Dr. Staple. Mm-hmm. Um, Sarah Paulson's character. Uh, I thought she was a standout in the trilogy, too. Um, you know, it, her her character. Well, first of all, I'll, I'll always see her as um, as uh, Lana from American Horror Story. Right. Uh, I think she <laughs> just one of those things, you know, same thing with Queen's Gambit and Casey and Casey. I, what is her name? Do you know um, that actress's name? Either of you? Uh, Ann no. Taylor something. What is it? I just actually I was just looking at that. Uh, she's great. I really like her. Sorry, I'm getting there, getting there. But uh, it, it doesn't it doesn't really matter. But um, in in glass, you know, like I said, kind of as a as a part of the Casey arc, she is able to sow doubt in almost all of these superhumans. Right. But with the three of them, we have glass, we have um, the horde and we have um David Dunn, who is what? What did what did they land on? What's his the overseer? The, I think the overseer. Yeah, he's the overseer. Yeah. Um, but you know, she's able to sow doubt not only in them but in their family members, and seeing the arc, you know, Joseph and and Casey, and not Mrs. Price as much, but you know, at least the first two, they 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 kind of gather that doubt they 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 have that reasonable what if question um that she's really able to you know kind of get in their heads um so seeing especially the conviction going from their conviction of you know joseph right he's the he's 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 helping his dad right he's so convicted that he's this superhuman and then she's still able to sow a little bit of doubt in him same with casey like you know, is this even real? What is what you saw real or is it a result of your trauma? Um, so I just thought that was really interesting. And I think uh, Sarah Paulson plays that character great. She really plays a manipulative psychiatrist really well. Oh, absolutely. And to the point where th- there are two twists at the end of class. Uh, the first twist is that she is part of this uh, kind of underground secret society who eliminate superhuman threats. And uh, one of the ways she tried to do that was to do it psychologically. And obviously it didn't work to the effect that she wanted it to because uh, Mr. Glass, the one person who her uh, psychological torment didn't work on, was him uh, because he's just so smart. That's literally his superhuman ability is his intelligence and his wit. And... He was able to be 10 steps ahead of her the entire time, but uh, th- that's a great twist. And then you've got the next twist, which is that Glass was 10 steps ahead the entire time filming the whole thing, uh, has her install 100 cameras in the facility to keep an eye on him because she's convinced that he's been getting out. Then she has him uh, 
his appointment to have this procedure done where he's basically going to be catatonic at that point moved up because she sees that he's been getting out, but he replaced a key part in the machine, didn't do anything. So then that expedited his timeline as far as getting him and the horde out. Like just the way he manipulates the entire situation is incredible. And it's really uh, like exacerbated by the fact that there's this other character in Dr. Staple who is also manipulating everybody to a great extent but uh, she's one of the people being manipulated by glass as well. See, I did not like her character. Um, I, I feel like as an actress or as an, an actor, too, um, that I think she did a good job for what the role was written as. But a part of me wonders, like, because we didn't get Robin Wright in this movie. You know, they, they had to kill off um, to give her like cancer or something. I wonder if like because it was Robin Wright, she didn't want to come back for this kind of movie where originally when M. Night Shyamalan was like coming up with this idea that it was going to be like her character. Because remember in the first one, how she set up to be like anti violence, anti becoming a superhero. That's kind of like what this character is. So maybe like it got turned around and that's how we got to this character. It's just me speculating on things Um, because it just like it feels so so foreign to from what everything else we've had thus far where like even the reveal too about being part of the secret society which i guess we could we should probably save that for the um the twist discussion but uh the idea that like this character like who is she like where did she come from and i i didn't really like you said zach if you thought she did a good job of manipulating and stuff like that i didn't i didn't like it i thought it came across as like someone who does not sound anything like a clinical psychiatrist but is trying to sound like one and it didn't come off as authentic uh, of a performance i i just i like the relationship between her and glass and i think they do a really good job at playing with each other because they both think that they're the smartest one in the room um Mm -hmm. well at some point i think that uh, that Sarah Paulson knows that Glass is the smartest one in the room and she does everything she can to inhibit him. Um, And even while giving him as much credit as she did, she still underestimated him at the end. Um, And I like that kind of nuanced piece of writing, you know, because she is trying to make sure that she's giving him all the credit she can while manipulating him somehow but it turns out there's no there was no way she was ever going to do she was doomed to fail from the beginning because of his his intelligence um and i really i I like that 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 particular part of the twist is really compelling i guess i just didn't really care for her as the character then because i don't disagree with anything you're saying about the um juxtaposition with her in glass just her as like the actor portraying it like i i knew she was up to no good right from the very beginning like i said like i don't trust this character right and i don't think like she there wasn't like the kind of turn that maybe like the person i was thinking of for this role too um oh what's her name oh my god i'm blanking on it now she played the mother in the golden compass what's her name nicole kidman there we go because i feel like it's Um, a very similar hmm. nicole kidman like i think she would do a really good job of like portraying the character that's supposed to be nice and good and then switching to be actually the bad character. I thought 
the performance, I, and I don't even know the actor's name, um, was not up to par for the kind of role it was. Think, thinking to like other podcast episodes we've done, like I like the villain that they created, but I don't like the person playing the villain because I don't think they do it justice, I guess is the point I'm making. That's fair. I mean, I, I, I think it was. At least the way I read it, it was intentional to kind of reveal her nefarious nature right from the start, not necessarily reveal it, but hint heavily to it. You know, uh, she she didn't try to subtly, you know, tell the audience that she was here for good. She you knew she wasn't going to be you, know, you knew she was kind of the 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 counter in a way, you know, to everything that that we wanted to happen. Um, so at least that was that was my take. And I think that that's probably why I read it a little uh, at the performance a little better. Yeah, I, I tend to agree a little bit more with Zach. It seemed like it was a little bit more kind of painted for us, just that she didn't believe that she was curing these people. It seemed more like she believed she was trying to convince them of something more than anything. Um, but maybe it was the acting that lended itself to that. So maybe both points are valid too. I'm not really sure what oh, the definitely. intent was, but, uh, either way, at least as far as, uh, the way the character was written, it was really interesting. And especially, uh, side by side with glass and the way they kind of try to one up each other as the movie progresses. Um, yeah, that was really redeeming for the movie, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, I think that's probably more about the story then than necessarily like the characters. Like the characters aren't serving themselves; the characters are serving the story. So, and that yeah. I, I like that part. Yeah. I think just on the very, and that might also just be a problem of what happened with this trilogy is that it's like movie one was way back here, uh, movie two and three are right here. That happened, I think, within the span of three weeks is what it um, the whole time frame between uh, split it's and a quick classes. turnaround. Yeah. yeah, so it's a lot less. And then you've got way now more characters introduced. So every character has less screen time, essentially, to win you over or explain away or blah, blah whatever their, the true intention behind that character is. Yeah. 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 And I think that Glass in particular struggled with that just because they they really tried to force it it being a trilogy, you know, mm -hmm. uh, and, and tying in all of these main characters and and making sure that the all of the main characters are relevant, including Joseph, who is the same actor from 20 years ago, you know, yeah, playing I was, his son. I was surprised that they recast him. Uh, you know, usually the child actor does not get recast as the adult. And I've I've not seen that guy in anything since that movie. It uh, must be the only thing that he's acted in since then. <laughs> I've never seen him. Either before. it was or he's I doing am. some indie stuff. But yeah, I, I have not seen that guy in anything. He wasn't terrible. I will say that. He was not as terrible as I assumed he would be the moment I saw him. When I saw as his adult actor. Yeah, right? I, I saw his very unique face. I'm like, oh no, they cast the adult version as the same guy, and I'm like, this can't end well, but it, it wasn't bad, and it was no, it wasn't fairly believable. Uh, I guess to wrap up acting and characters in a little bow here quickly, the only two semi-important ones other than them are uh, 
Joseph, which we touched upon a little bit, and really his big thing is, especially in Glass, his belief being questioned in his father. And uh, I, I think he did a better job of portraying that than Bruce Willis did as David Dunn not believing in himself uh that just a couple of those scenes like he's watching a guy at the gym bench and he's like well that guy's benching a lot was i just a kid and just thought my dad was so awesome because he can bench a lot or was he actually indestructible and then he's got to start thinking like am i really like even more of an asshole for holding a gun to my dad because he's not invincible instead of just he didn't want me to shoot him um so that was kind of interesting. And then I guess the other one would be uh, Mrs. Price, who is important a bit in Unbreakable because she introduces Elijah to the comic books and it's as a form of incentive to get him out of the house and uh, kind of get rid of this agoraphobia that he has because he's going to break every bone in his body every time he moves. And she serves as the motivation for Glass at the very end of that movie of Glass because he so wants to tell his mom I wasn't a mistake, and he does that right before he dies. Uh, but she's more of a plot device than anything, I think. But yeah. uh, any other characters you guys wanted to touch on? Uh, we didn't I really actually did want to... Go ahead, Zach. Uh, I, I think we're probably going in the same direction, Andy. I, th I, I, I actually wanted to get your guys opinion on dr fletcher and what you thought of her oh, and split different. oh all right well what were you gonna say we'll, we'll touch on both of them uh so mine is gonna be robin wright's uh character audrey um, audrey i think, yeah, I think okay. she's a really important character in the first one um to like build up the character we ultimately see but uh going with the 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 dr price well, Doc, Dr. Fletcher is um, yeah. is so she yeah, she's the she's Kevin's psychiatrist. And I guess the it, from what it seems in Split is they Barry is usually the one that goes to talk to her. Um, but I, I can't remember if. Uh, if, if some of the other personalities usually come out too, but um, I'm just more curious from you guys, kind of what you thought about her as like uh, this, this kind of groundbreaking psychiatrist and the, you know, the, that, that kind of story that they put out for her, um, you know, doing this unprecedented work, trying to get the approval of her peers, you know, putting out this, what seems like this crazy conspiracy theory, you know, to, to her, to her uh, peers and everything like that. I'll start because I didn't like it, and then I'll let if Ted's going to say things to like about it to end on a positive note with it. Um, I hated the character. I really despise in any kind of movie with really any profession. Um, but you take a profession and then it's like, OK, we're gonna, we need to use this profession to drive the plot in some certain way, particularly when it involves mental health. Um, like this character, like it's trying to be just like your typical psychiatrist. She's on the breakthrough with something with it. She's, you know, she's giving a presentation on it. She's, you called her the exposition something, the doctor exposition in the, the overview or the, um, the plot summary. Um, I just don't like that. And then there were times when she had really good acting moments within it. But I, I just dislike that kind of character in a movie. I don't believe it. A lot of times it feels really inauthentic, um, except for there are really good moments, I think, between her and the individual character at times. Yeah, I, I pretty much completely agree with that. Uh, the moments with 
the multiple personalities when she's kind of psychoanalyzing uh, Dennis, who's playing Barry. I think that's good. I think she's a decent actress, but the way she was used was mostly as a plot device to just kind of keep the thing rolling. It was super plot convenience that everything she did was either doing that conference or she's talking to her friend in the park or she's talking to her neighbor and her neighbor says, I don't know how you do it. I don't know how you work with those people. And then she's like, well, I think that they got superhuman powers. So they're really cool. It's like, all right. How many times do you have to say it? Like, just have maybe one scene. I think it was overdone a bit. Uh, Yeah, I think I had her written as an exposition machine. She pretty much was that. Uh, It was just to drive the plot forward. She was fine as an actress, though. And to my point I made earlier about like Blumhouse Productions, like that's what made it feel like it. Here's this really cheesy doesn't uh, like uh, it takes you out of the movie because it's like here let's explain this thing instead of showing us through a, you know a way better maybe even directed or written scene sequence we're gonna have this one character explain everything to you and it's just gonna be kind of over the top and in my opinion not done very well that's fair that's fair i was i was conflicted that's what i wanted to ask you guys because I, I don't I didn't hate it as much. Um, you know, I, I, I did really enjoy her acting and I totally understand that it's, it wasn't super authentic, um, but I didn't hate that she was the exposition for this. You know, I didn't hate her role in the movie. Um, you know, she didn't get a lot of screen time and it allowed uh, the a story to be further exposed. You know, I think it left a lot of headroom for that for that part of the story to to be you know better sussed out and then kind of just hitting the well this is why it's important sort of thing with dr fletcher so um i understand where you're coming from i didn't hate it as much but that's why i was curious yeah uh did we want to say any more on uh audrey i mean i i think you said it pretty succinctly andy that uh she's great motivation for david in the first movie but yeah, and just an, an under I'm not underrated performance from Robin Wright, because I think she's a, a great actor. But the fact that like we didn't get her in this third one, you know, that they had to write her off um, as dying away, probably because she didn't want to do it. Um, it would be my guess <laughs> coming back for a, an M. Night Shyamalan movie, which is the third in a trilogy that I didn't know was a trilogy. Uh, it probably doesn't pay very well because it's a Blumhouse production like that was just thinking that. Uh, OK, I see what they're doing here. We lower. Lower quality movies is what we got, essentially. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, Well, let's move into something that really stands out in these movies, and that's cinematography. Uh, Similar to James McAvoy's acting, you can't say enough about the cinematography. It's so consistent across all of the movies, even in Glass, even though it's the weakest of the movies. I think the cinematography, specifically in some of the fight scenes, where you've got a lot of these like POV shots. There's so many POV shots where it's either the camera looking at one character or looking from the perspective of the character. Straight POV really works for these like really close up uh, kind of intimate fight scenes that they have because as much as this is about uh, superhumans, 
they don't have like these super extraordinary abilities that we see in stuff like the Marvel comics and DC and stuff like that. It's really kind of street level stuff that you would maybe see with like the Punisher, Daredevil, that kind of stuff uh, with like all those Netflix Marvel shows where it's, well, they're superhuman, but they're not so superhuman that they're like gods. So it makes sense to have like these really close up shots with these POV shots uh, with like David looking like he's got somebody's arms wringing his neck and pushing him into everything. And uh, these close ups of the beast just like breathing heavily and like every muscle on his chest moving. Uh, I really liked what they did with the cinematography. I'm sure you guys have more to say about that. I'll jump in. I I think it's the strongest in the first movie um, where I think this is actually a, a much better produced film uh, than the other two. Yes, they're more modern and I think audiences can appreciate a more modern looking film. Uh, but like you don't get the same cinematography in the last two that you do in the first one. I mean, like just I'm going to throw out some examples The in the very beginning, the train sequence, the, the camera is in between the two chairs and just pans from one side to the other with Bruce Willis and that other uh, actor, the person he takes it off his ring, you know, to try to seduce. Uh, the next like big sequence that happens is in the hospital. The person uh, is being, I'm kind of giving a visual demonstration, like there's someone on like a bed getting worked on, operated or something like that. And the camera is just moving um, towards Bruce Willis's character and the doctor talking about it and the camera just sits there and you watch as the blood starts to pool on the character and like funny like there are these just incredible incredible shots there's another one where like the camera is on the steps as Bruce Willis is coming in and just the way it like tracks him that is like the cinematography that I like to see in movies when you can actually like appreciate it. In the other two movies, like, yes, there are things I thought in Split, there was a lot of upside down camera usage and like how it um, kind of like tracks people. Uh, there were good shots of like light and dark, just not the same level. And I think it's because of the production companies that were behind it. I don't even know who the cinematographer was for um, Split. I, I was trying to look it up quickly to see uh, in glass. That being said, not bad, but just I think the first movie unbreakable is on a whole nother level compared to the other two. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with that. Um, the, 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 the camera work in, in unbreakable is, is just unbelievable. And I mean, it, it, it's not just like the way it's shot. It's, it's the shots that really give to, they, they tell more story than just what's within the shot. Uh, you know, it just, it, it really, gives a lot of exposition to each and every scene things like um you know i'll give a couple examples of what i really liked you know the the um the the scene when glass or when uh, you know elijah gets the, his first comic book and he opens the box and it spins like mm. you would see like in a in a you know you would, that's very comic book feeling like it just it gives you that hit in the chest that like it, you just feel more impact from a shot like that um you know, you see there's a lot of examples of that with you know, the, the comic book feel like when he brushes up against somebody, you get that that shot of of white, just like you would see in a, with a thought bubble above his head, like in a comic frame. Like it really does a good job of feeling 
very much like the theme of the movie um, without being like a, a comic book movie, without being, you know, the, what we would we would see is like a Marvel or or DC movie. Um, just breathtaking um, visual experience overall. Yeah, I, I can agree that Unbreakable is probably the best cinematography of all, but there are standout moments in the other two movies. Uh, Zach and I talked about previous to this, uh, the scene where they're in Hedwig's room and he's dancing to Kanye. Yeah. And it's literally, it's again, that POV shot. I think that's the most consistent over the movies is that POV shot that makes you feel like you're in this uncomfortable situation. Like you feel like you're Casey in that moment and you have to watch this guy who has a nine-year-old personality out currently and is dancing like a maniac to this movie and looks super threatening in some ways too, because he's technically an adult, but he's got the mind of a child in that moment. And it, it just really makes you uncomfortable in that scene. Uh, but then in glass, I really liked uh, just this one single shot. And it's when it's starting to be revealed that uh, glass has been manipulating things and that he's been getting out of his cell and he's not catatonic. Uh, it's just, a shot of a couple of shadows from windows and then just this wheelchair going across. And it's a really well done wide shot. Uh, I also like the shot of when he reveals himself to the horde and uh, they can't really see him because it's too bright outside in the hallway there, but it's too dark in the cell. And finally he moves up a little closer. I think that's when he says, you can call me Mr. Glass, whatever. You know, some individual shots, I think, really stand out in those movies. But yeah, I'd say overall, Unbreakable is the way stronger one with cinematography. But I think they did try to be consistent across the movies as much as they could. They probably didn't have the same cinematographers for each movie because the span between them is so huge. I mean, 16 years between uh, the first two movies and then just three years between split and glass but still that's asking a lot to get that perfectly across all of them i think one element that they did a really good job at at, at using and being consistent is and in and being effective with are the flashback scenes in um especially in unbreakable and split um i thought the the use of the flashbacks were super effective um especially in split you get you really like the you feel the tension um in those scenes like in 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 general the the camera shots that you, that you're talking about too Ted like that POV shot in, in Hedwig's room you, it just it adds another element of tension to the scene and it just makes you so uncomfortable um but i i think that that that's one thing that was really consistent among the, the at least those two films I, i'm trying to remember if there were any flashbacks of consequence in glass um, maybe towards the end when they were revealing some stuff, but you get glasses flashback. Um, when he's you get the yeah, there are actually there are a lot of them. You get the flashback for the a little more with uh James McAvoy's character and like his abusive mom. Uh, that, yeah, that's a good the one. Drowning yeah. sequence where Bruce Willis starts doubting, like, oh, do I that's actually have right? Some yeah. Um, yeah, and, so there's actually more flashbacks than I initially yeah. thought, and, and and they were all really effective. 
Yeah, there's another one with Joseph, uh, but it's a literal flashback to the first movie is him talking to his dad before he goes to bed about, like, what's happening, about the powers and everything like that. And then that's, like, when he's starting to doubt himself. I think that's when the flashbacks are most used effectively in Glass is to, you know, show the seeds of doubt when they're thinking back, like, was this really what I thought it was at the time? Am I really special or am I psychotic here? Because somebody's telling me that I am this entire time. Yeah. Yeah. And and they can tell that story just with camera work. Yeah. You know, it doesn't need dialogue to to explain it, which is really cool. Yeah. And I think that is a huge like like comparing the first movie to the other two, which happened later on, is just like a difference. Like the first one is show us, don't tell us the yeah. two and three are tell us, don't show us or show tell us, show us a little bit, but we're going to tell you a lot more than we're actually going to show you. Yeah, they definitely rely on dialogue a lot more in those last two, uh, despite Bruce Willis's resistance to do so. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, yeah, he requested uh, a non-speaking part, actually, for Glass. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He almost got it. He was pretty close to it. <laughs> he was pretty close. <laughs> I, I think he got paid by the word was the problem. <laughs> Yikes. You know, <laughs> you know what other shot out? What was that? They did the movie for free then. <laughs> Basically, yeah. <laughs> or, he, or he gets paid a lot for each word. Well, you said it was a Blumhouse film, so they've got to cut costs where they can. Yeah, I don't know if Bruce Willis is going to let him cut too much cost off of him. Yeah. But the, the the last thing, my favorite shot in the whole series is the shot in Unbreakable through the curtains in the in the home invasion where he's in the parents' room and everything is through the curtains. It's like maybe a 45-second scene through the curtains. And you could you start to see some some movement behind the curtains. You see you see Dunn, and then you see him come out, and then you see the orange jumpsuit of the guy. And it's all through these wavy curtains, and you know everything in these. The, I so appreciate these raw shots that are what is causing that type of emotion. You know, everything being very natural, very limited special effects um, in Unbreakable, especially. And just these rock camera shot, uh, cam- this rock camera work that makes it so compelling. So, yeah, I feel like I could talk about the cinematography in this movie for days, but yeah. But, you know, kind of some of what we were talking about leads pretty well into the thing that Shyamalan's most famous for, which is uh, the foreshadowing and twists. And I mean, I, I think he did a very good job, especially with foreshadowing. I think those uh, flashbacks really serve as good foreshadowing elements. And uh, like you guys said, kind of ramp up that intensity, especially in Split. I mean, each scene you get specifically for Casey just ramps up in intensity each time. You've got the first scene where she's at the restaurant with her uncle and her dad, and it seems all hunky-dory. Then you've got the next scene where the dad's telling her that uh, females are survivors and all that stuff. Then the scene after that, you've got uh, the dad passed out and the uncle telling her to play animals with him, which I won't even get into. 
That's the abuse part, obviously. And then you know that already. And then you find out that dad dies and that he is going to become the legal guardian and asks her not to make a fuss, essentially. Uh, really just drives home how rough that is and like how much she's been internalizing that entire movie. And then finally leads up to the scene where the beast sees her scars and it's like, wow, you've been going through this this entire time. You're just like me. Amazing. Uh, again, I'll say that I think the first one does a better job with foreshadowing as opposed to just like telling you what's going to happen. Um, I think like that first scene in Unbreakable, the sequence on the train, you know, it just mentions the can't swim like they're just they're giving you these things that it isn't really telling you um like to hey get ready for this thing coming down the road like we're setting you up for this rather it's showing you through this opportunity to flirt with this woman something that's going to play a part later on but it doesn't connect because it's specifically going to come up later which i think is the uh, the worst kind of foreshadowing not the the better kind that i think makes for a better movie um but at least you have it. I think like there's a lot in glass, actually, I think more so than split that does foreshadowing um, with like the cameras and everything um, getting them set up. I thought was really cool. Um, those are just some of the things that jump out at me uh, across all the movies. But I think like, I, again, I'm going to obviously I'm kind of showing my cards here with this one that unbreakable. I just think did a better job with foreshadowing than these two. No. So, yeah, I, I mean, I think Unbreakable and, and you know, I, maybe I'm speaking a little out of turn here. But I think Unbreakable is pretty clearly the, the better movie in this series. Um, so I agree. I think that it definitely did a better at, at, at executing the foreshadowing element within the movie. You know, things like. Um, uh I'm trying to think I actually I had an example and I just kind of lost it after my coughing fit, but I'll I'll skip to, to split for a moment. You know, when we when we see even in, in this is maybe more James thing or eh, probably direction, but you we see Barry in, in, in his first appointment at Dr. Fletcher's and he's moving all these things, you know, showing the the OCD feature of Dennis. You're like, oh, that's kind of weird. And, and you even see Dr. Fletcher noticing that as well. You know, the, there's a lot of those subtleties within James McAvoy and in his different characters that you can kind of just give you hints in the direction that that character is going. Does a really good job with with uh, with Kevin's personalities in general. Um, I really like that in 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 glass. Lots of. Um, there the, I, I, I enjoy kind of the elements of where you know kind of utilizing the character like you have the um the the good the neutral and the chaotic right in in david dunn is kind of and, and joseph are the kind of the good team you have the neutral uh which is the, the james mcavoy and casey character and then you have the chaotic and, and kind of evil which is the price character and kind of using those archetypes and really using the, those archetypes along with these literary elements that kind of lead you into the direction that the the, the twist is going. Um, and, and maybe that's a lot in hindsight. Maybe you don't see that as much throughout the movies. Um, 
but uh but those those are kind of the highlights in the second two movies but i do think that unbreakable does a better job overall yeah, yeah I'm, I'm struggling to think of like for like actual foreshadowing that took it place in split like nothing is jumping out at me as foreshadowing um like even the example of the like ocd i don't think that's foreshadowing that's literally just like showing you this is a thing and then it's like revealed to be attached to the character not setting you up for something that's going to occur later on that's fair I've got one uh, that I just thought about, and I I guess it's not the most important thing, but uh, in one scene you have Miss Patricia, she's making and cutting sandwiches for the girls, and while doing so, she's just kind of spouting out these things that she seems to think are like fun facts about some big cats and animals, uh, some beasts. So like it's both foreshadowing of possibly what you're going to get with the beast as far as like this animalistic creature but also uh the reveal that they are underneath a zoo the entire time and that's the type of cage that casey ends up being under and it's like okay well this is how she has this information and then if you go even further into uh glass a little bit uh with sowing the seeds of doubt you kind of get a little bit of a connection to that and Obviously, this was written afterward, maybe not even planned, but you get a little bit of a connection to that when uh, Dr. Staples suggests that uh, the the Horde maybe found out how to climb on walls and do expert climbing techniques by watching YouTube videos. And, uh, you know, one of the big plot devices in Split toward the end is the computer that Casey finds and she sees the kind of video diaries of the personalities. So I think that connects uh, in a way as well. Uh, But it's hard to say how much was planned with one movie to the next at that point. But I I do find that kind of interesting, at least maybe not as much foreshadowing as you see in the other two movies, but I thought that was an interesting one. I think that's a really good one. Actually, I didn't even think of the animal one. And I think that like maybe it's a bigger setup and in some ways maybe think of like two and three as they're still separate movies, but they're one like they're a much greater sum together than they are of the first one. So if you put the the two together, there are more connections between those two movies where you're setting up for the things that are going to be revealed ultimately uh, in glass. So if I think of it that way, I think, yeah, Ted, that's a really good example of the the zoo and talking about animals and whatnot. Yeah. And that's kind of a symptom too of like, we talked about it. This didn't seem like this was meant to be a series and it just kind of was shoehorned into one and it ended up being a fine one overall but it that's one of the weaknesses you'll get from a movie that seems so disconnected from the first to the second other than literally what ends up being the equivalent of a marvel uh end credit scene essentially where it's just setting up the next thing but that was really the only connection other than maybe if you saw any connections and i'm sure they're in there that like this was happening in philadelphia which is where Unbreakable was taking place. But other than that, I don't know if you could ever find a connection going into these movies, making it a series. One I did look for was at the end or after watching Glass, um, and it's revealed, you know, that the big whole or the thing that's kind of tying all these characters together is the train ride that um, 
uh, yeah. James McAvoy's father was on the train that ended up causing this whole movie trilogy to really even start in the first place. Um, so I went back and I watched that first scene again um, in Unbreakable. Like, wait, do we get an actual shot of like a briefcase in there? And you don't, sadly. I was mm -hmm. really hoping that they were going to like that would be like a mastermind thing. But no, unfortunately, you don't get to see that in there. That would have been next level if they had not even planned it and just found a shot where there was this dude that you can't see, but there's a briefcase. That would have been incredible. That would have been like Star Wars level of, uh, you know, you got the guy in Empire Strikes Back who's running with the ice cream machine. And uh, there's a whole backstory to him now. Stuff like that. Yeah. Anything else on uh, the twists and foreshadowing? Well, can we talk about like the twists, you know, themselves? Because sure. I think foreshadowing is a great literary element that gets utilized, especially in the first one. But like Emily Shamalan, he's about twists. Like that's what his movies are known for. Is it some kind of like thriller where there's going to be a twist towards the end that's going to really throw things? We did talk about this briefly in the lead up. I think the second one might have the weakest of the twists um, just because it's kind of in your face the whole time. A lot of ways. The first one I think was the most surprising to me. Um, the third one uh, I did not see at the end the I guess the twist on the twist, which might've been like meta level M night Shyamalan where it's like, Oh, he, uh, he actually recorded all of this to send it out. Um, but I felt like it was stronger than the twist in Split. But I, like Zach, you said you saw the first one coming. Uh, I did not. I had no idea that he was going to be the villain. Like something was it with it. I couldn't figure out the whole time what it was going to be. But it was not thinking that his character. And actually, I think I was led to believe it wasn't going to be that. Because in my mind, I knew Samuel L. Jackson comes back in the third one. No idea what the connection was or the relationship to the characters between them. But I was thinking, oh, he's got to be like one of the good guys or a part of this like new superhero Justice League that's developing right now before our eyes. Did not see him being the the ultimate like bad guy mastermind behind it all. I think one thing that that helped that and, and, and this is what I was thinking of foreshadowing is that you know there's one line in the movie where samuel L. jackson says i've been waiting i've been listening i've been reaching to hear those words there was an accident and there was one survivor and that line kind of set up a course of okay this he's he he's looking for this person he's been looking for david dunn his whole life essentially and he's gonna do whatever he needs to do to reveal this person um, for who they are. Um, and so that kind of helped lead me to understanding that twist. But I mean, it it really I mean, the glass character is just so compelling that he I mean, he can lead you down a lot of different roads. Um, you know, it's just really, really interesting. Um, you know, the way he thinks and the way that character thinks. Yeah, that's a good one quote to sum it up pretty well. I, I I know I heard that quote in the movie, but just at the time, I didn't put two and two together as far as, okay, he has been searching for this, but I guess I never thought he would actively try to expedite the process by creating disasters in order to actively look for the one survivor, but... 
what's the best way to make sure you do find that one survivor is to do it all yourself, I guess. So he was a real do-it-yourselfer. Yeah, yeah. He's like a... I, I, I don't know the exact archetype, but he's like this this chaotic evil, I guess, would be the the archetype. Like he caught, but he causes the chaos. You know, yeah. he's the he's the manipulator of the whole thing. He does a better job of what they're trying to do in Batman versus Superman with Lex Luthor manipulating everything than they do in that movie. I think I think it's a similar type of character and it's executed way better. Yeah, it, uh, yeah, hold on. It just character. it kind of relates because I think it has to do with the twist. And you since you mentioned it, Batman versus Superman, the whole Martha moment reminded me of what happens between the Beast uh, and uh, Anna Taylor's character, where he's like, oh, "You're you're broken like I am. I'm broken too. I can't kill you now. Let me leave." Like, oh, your <laughs> mother's name's Martha. My mother's name's Martha. No, I can't kill you. Well, at least it was set up, though, because... Better it, reason. Yeah, it, <laughs> I, I, I think yes. it's way more set up, because that's literally just having mothers with the same name. This was set up the entire movie, you know, from the get-go. They're told that, we're sorry, we know you're just scared food, don't worry. And it's like all these little hints to the fact that they are impure, and the fact that they are impure is because they seemingly have not suffered abuse like the Beast has. Uh, you know, for Casey, unfortunately, she's essentially there for the ride because she's really not supposed to be part of that whole group. Uh, the two other girls are the targets, essentially, and Casey is brought along begrudgingly because she's that pity invite, and the dad says he'll drive her home. So she's just kind of there accidentally, and... Her being the lone survivor and her being the one who finally gets to him in a way makes sense because she has always distanced herself from everybody. Uh, I, I just think it was way more set up. I don't think it was as contrived as what you get in Batman versus yeah. Superman. That's literally like, I hate you. I'm going to kill you. Oh, wait, your name, your mom's name's Martha. I guess we're buddies now. That Maybe we sucks. do have more in common than we have a difference. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, lazy we're writers. More alike than different, you and I. Lazy writers for the early DC comics is what they have in common. Somebody couldn't just come <laughs> up with another name for a mom. But uh, can't beat Martha though. It was the right move. It was the right move. It, I mean, yeah, true. Uh. Anything more on twists before we move on to something else? I mean, you get you get a bunch of Shyamalan twists in here. I yeah. don't think they're they're you know the twists of his career, but you get a bunch of Shyamalan twists. Yeah, they're Shyamalan movies. You know, that's fair. I don't think I I really don't think that those are the highlights of the movies, which is good. It's a good thing. Yeah, I guess it's just something you have to mention with Shyamalan. It's always sure. an aspect and uh, it it was interesting to see that split really didn't have much of one. Well, and I think this is a good segue into the next topic, which is the comic archetypes, because that's, I think, really where the strength of these three movies lies. Maybe less so in split, because I think it's the one where we can all agree it doesn't really seem like it's the same comic book type movie because we don't even think mention comic books 
at all uh, in the movie whatsoever. Um, but the other two do a really good job of like, hey, we're like basing this off of something. And it's these comic book archetypes, these heroes, villains, how the heroes come about. Um, they're the dyad in the force. The Star Wars reference I made comes from this is that, you know, there's this thing. We've got two individuals who are connected. Um, they are soul bound. They are star crossed, whatever you want to call it. It's a, a common trope um, in literature and movies. Uh, and more so in like comic book type things, too. So I think there are some like really cool things to talk about this trilogy from that point of view. Not so much the twist with M. Night Shyamalan, but this world he's creating, his own superhero world. Yeah. Yeah. I, I thought it was interesting that in these movies that were kind of superhero movies, uh, they have less of the origin story in the sense of like how did i get the powers that i have like for both dunn and glass it's literally just they're both born a certain way and that's their destiny they are just bound together for life and then i guess split more so if you want to look at it from a comic book perspective does have an origin story where it's all right we've got this character he was abused and his mind splintered and it manifested in a bunch of personalities, including one that was superhuman. Uh, so that that's more of an origin story. But I did find it interesting and kind of refreshing in a way that it didn't need to go into the whole. My parents were shot. Uh, my uncle was killed and I was bit by a spider. You know, all the hokey not even hokey, I, I shouldn't say that, because I do like those things in superhero movies, but it's kind of refreshing to just get a little change in that. It was just, they're born this way, they're predestined. Uh, aside from Kevin and his personalities, that's a little different, but uh, you could also argue that he is predestined with them as well, because he ends up being interconnected between uh, the accident that uh, Price causes, essentially creating a character in a way. I, I just really thought the origins were interesting, refreshing, and didn't need to go too deep into the nitty gritty of like specifically what happened, you know? Yeah, well, I, I think that Split kind of separates itself from the other two in that it is kind of just its own isolated origin story. Um, you know, it doesn't have the same direct connectivity that you see with the other two even unbreakable i mean you, you definitely see because you have both david dunn and glass in both movies you obviously you have that connection inherently but split kind of and i think this is kind of why i like split so much is it does depart from the normal Shyamalan movie um you know and and the way he created this trilogy is incredibly unique where it doesn't necessarily fit within a timeline other than it just may, you know, that's when he had got his superpowers, I guess, for, for lack of a better, um, for lack of a better term. But, um, you know, I, I, lo I do love that, you know, Glass kind of has this self-fulfilling prophecy that, that almost creates this timeline without Glass's interference and without his, his kind of master plan none of this happens you know um including kevin 
you know, glass is the catalyst to the entire series of events. Um, and that's probably the most compelling to me. I know I've, I've talked about Glass's character a lot and, and why I like him so much. And that's definitely the biggest reason is that Glass is really the one that 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 makes all of this possible. Uh, and, and he makes a perfect supervillain. Well, and Ted, you said like this, it's like an origin story, but it isn't. I think into Zach's point with Glass being really like this is his movie trilogy in some ways. You can really think about it that way because he even says in the line and Glass, like while he's dying, it's like there's mom is saying something like, oh, I thought you said that this was going to be like the um, the limited edition or whatever. And he's like, no, 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 this isn't the limited edition. This is the origin story. This is how like everything's going to come about. So really, we were getting like a very in-depth origin story without it being like told as an origin story. When you really look at the the three movies together now, it's like, oh, this is how superheroes enter the world is through this trilogy here or superheroes um, as we know them in the world. Because that's another thing I like about this, too, is that these superheroes are super grounded. The idea from the first movie is that what we see in comic books is just a, a tradition carried on through storytelling. We've done it since ancient times as humans to talk about those with like extraordinary powers. But just like in a game of telephone, things get as exaggerated over time. Uh, and then I even like to in glass where they talk about Superman, you know, in the first edition, didn't fly. It wasn't until later on in the comic runs that he learned or that we then Im imbue him the the power to fly so like these movies i love that it's grounded in reality but they are still extraordinary they are still superheroes super villains yeah those are actually really good points uh for, from the storytelling perspective the whole trilogy is an origin story and that is really interesting i guess just what i meant as far as like specifically getting the powers mm -hmm. uh was just happenstance but it, it actually plays into what you said you know superman not being able to fly well a lot of the origin stories that we know today for the movies of comic book heroes were not written immediately for the character it was they had powers you were introduced to them no explanation and then years down the line somebody made an origin story for them and that's the most widely accepted one or it's changed uh, over the years and you see that in movies, I, I guess because of the culture that we live in with comic book movies so prevalent, we so often see the later origin story first in movies. But uh, it actually makes more sense uh, now that I'm thinking about it in the structure of these movies because they are based like primarily from a comic book in that structure that those things would come later on and that they would be more myth or folklore, something like that, exaggerated stuff, like you said. I, I think that's a really interesting thing that uh, you guys kind of just opened my eyes to there. So very interesting. Glad they're open. Absolutely. Yeah, I, it's a really unique telling of a, of a you know, co comic book story. I think these are, this is, these are, this is a series of movies that kind of stands out uh, in a world of, you know, universes and comic book movies and all these different franchises is really unique. And I want to see more, too. Like uh, uh, the third one, 
we'll talk about ratings and stuff like that in a little while. But like one thing I really liked about it was the setup of this like other society. Like, oh, like I like where's this going? What is this clover that they have, you know, all tattooed on them? You know, what does that mean? Where's this like I want to know more now about this universe because of this third one. Um, and I think like what's really strong um, to showcase the comic book archetypes uh, that you, we get in today's modern superhero movies, this one, this one like doesn't have them. And I think again, because it's so grounded in reality that you don't necessarily need it. Um, but it, like that's I really like that exciting and I want more of that now. Like I want I hope we get to revisit the M. Night Shyamalan um, universe so we can keep exploring these archetypes. Like what does he do next in this now that we see the origin, essentially these superheroes? How does that epic battle? How does that meet up? You know, all those other archetype or themes or things that happen in comic books um, that we just we don't we won't ever know, I guess, because there aren't more movies coming out with this. But I would be curious to know what they were. I mean, there's a, there's a surprising amount of world building, especially in glass um, that you, you wouldn't necessarily expect from the end of a trilogy. Mm -hmm. um, but but there is like quite a bit of world building that kind of leaves you wondering what happens next. Where did this where does this go? It's a, it's a really good point. Um, but I, I would just say, like, I think that they actually do a good job at at presenting comic book archetypes just in a unique way. You know, you 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 have the reluctant hero in David Dunn. You have the nefarious evil mastermind in Elijah Price. You have the um, you know, it's kind of just the 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 anti-hero motivated by vengeance um in in Kevin Wendell Crumb and the horde. Um I think they're they 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 do fit in buckets, but they're presented in an extremely compelling way from front from front to back. Yeah. Uh do we have any more thoughts on comic archetypes? Uh I mean one thing I can think of is at least just like the flat out references to comic books that Elijah Price does. Uh it's very meta in that sense in glass specifically like obviously unbreakable there's quite a bit of that too but that's more along the lines of david dunn discovering who he is uh as it relates to comic books but with glass it's more like glass is literally saying out loud this is the point where the main characters come into the story and this is the part where the villains team up. He says that to the Horde. And like you guys said, this is the origin story. I, I thought that was a really unique touch to it as well, getting super meta with it. Uh, that The world within a world here, essentially, where he knows this world of comic books so well and he can pinpoint uh, the exact moments that are happening as they relate to comics. And it helps that he orchestrated the entire thing. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, we didn't touch on music. Did you guys have any thoughts on music? I, I think Zach might have had some stuff. Well, you know, the, the I, I, to be honest, I didn't really notice it too much of a score or a soundtrack. Um, so it's maybe not music isn't the right <laughs> the right word to praise. But um, the. 
the sound production and direction um, in terms of exposition and texture that was really, really effective in, in these movies, especially, you know, you kind of got these subtle like comic book hits in Unbreakable, which is what really stood out to me, you know, where you would see the the boom or power flash. You sort of got that in, in these really subtle hits in, in the music that paired with something along the lines of a, a flash of white when David Dunn brushed across somebody. You know, you you the the texture was really effective in, um, you know, the same, same very similar to the cinematography in telling a, furthering the story with the just it, within a cinematic experience. Um, so that that's really my my big praise for for this series, and and I noticed it more in Unbreakable than the other movie, uh, which I guess is a common theme. Yeah, um, it, and. But yeah, go ahead, Andy. Oh, I was just going to piggyback right off that point. I think it's like one of those things with music and movies. When our podcast, we've been trying to, you know, when it's something that comes up, we listen. And that did happen a little bit in the first one. Uh, again, it's like a departure when we get to two and three. But I will give credit to two in terms of like sound design um, and the score. Like it was more like a horror movie than any of the other mm-hmm. ones. And there were those elements where like there would be no sound like you were just or music there would just be the sounds of the scene to kind of draw you into or there'd be those um like horror movie notes and musical moments that appear not like a recognizable tune except for the the whatever hip-hop kind of beat that we get um in unbreakable and at the end of um split where you, you get some kind of like uh, reoccurring musical theme that happens but nothing really like jumps out across the whole trilogy the first one gives us more i think of like a, a musical kind of score to work with a film and then the the other two it's a departure with two sounding more like a horror movie than any other um, movie type or just standing out differently from the other three other two yeah i can agree with all of that i think uh the music or I, I guess the score more than anything was unnoticeable for the most part because it did its job of fitting the scenes perfectly and exemplifying moments more than anything. It wasn't music that was supposed to make you feel a certain thing at a moment. There wasn't a recurring theme or anything like that other than like what we said that hip hop beat. And I, I don't, I don't even really know the purpose of that one other than that M. Night Shyamalan was like, 16 years later, I'm going to have another movie that seems like it's not going to connect to this one, and at the very end of it, I'm going to do that. And then there's going to be one scene, and that's it. That's the twist. Do you think anyone who saw that movie in theaters, like when they heard the music, they're like, that's the music from Unbreakable! There had to be one guy. There's always I think somebody that was the hope. Yeah, that was yeah. the hope is just to be evocative of that one of that one motif <laughs> uh, motif. Yeah, uh, he's probably assuming that Unbreakable was more memorable than it actually was. It's a fine movie, but it's There's not a little one... bit of ego involved involved. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I mentioned I saw it as a kid and I didn't really remember anything from it. So I I think that tells you everything about it. It's a fine movie, but I don't think anybody was like, 
Man, I could really use a sequel to that. Especially with the way it ended. I, w I do want to say really quickly, I hated that scene right after uh, that they have the moment between Price and Dunn. They shake the hands, he sees everything, and uh, he just walks away from the art gallery and it's like, David Dunn turned him in. Hell yeah, he's in a psychiatric facility now. It's like, really? Like, that's how we're going to end this thing? Leave it on a cliffhanger. Make it seem like it's going to lead into something more. I, I think that was a big mistake originally with Unbreakable. Like, whether you were going to do a series or not, maybe it would have stuck in people's minds more if he left it on that cliffhanger and people were like, whoa, I want to see more here. Just my thoughts, at least. A fair I criticism. Yeah. Any final thoughts? Uh, I'm thinking just rankings and getting out of here, but if you guys have any final thoughts, let me know. I, I did say that, like, I would like to see more world buildings. I kind of alluded to that. That was it. I want, I want another movie after this one, to be frank. I would love to see, explore this universe more. Um, really enjoyed just the how we get to this, you know, world um, that was set up. So that was like unexpected. So like, yeah, I think it was cool. And um, uh, nothing really to add further than that or anything. Yeah, I agree, Andy. I think it would be really cool to see um, some continuation within the same universe, you know, maybe not with David Dunn. God willing, not with David Dunn. And um, <laughs> well, thank God. He's uh, dead. Yeah, he, he's dead. <laughs> oh, that's true. Right. They're, they're all dead. Yeah, so yeah. it doesn't really. But, uh, you know, con like a continuation of the the kind of that underground society with maybe new heroes or they, you know, maybe even like this, you know, like a, a, a kind of underground, like where, where the villains are, the, you know, this underground society is the main you know, focus of the story. Something like that would be really cool. I, th I thought that was really compelling. Not that it really has much to do with the other two movies. Um, you know, I think that it would be a very large departure from this trilogy. But the universe is cool. I think they did a good job at actually building that world. So that'd be yeah. fun to see. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I'd be intrigued to see more because it's very unique in this uh, genre, I guess, of comic book yeah. movie. Uh, even though it's not even based on comic books, it's based on the idea of comic books, which is really interesting. Uh, and yeah, since they all died, it actually sets it up better with the implications that Glass sets up with introducing the world to superhumans that they could actually do something that maybe feels a little more structured going forward. Because like we said, this thing didn't feel like it was planned. I don't think it was planned. I don't think you go back to a movie from 16 years ago that really doesn't seem like it has any connection to anything else and do that unless you really think you can kind of force it into a franchise. So I, I think they did as good a job as they could with what they were presented with, uh, but it'll be interesting to see if they do go moving forward with new characters. They have a clean slate now, but they have a world established. Like you guys said, the world building was actually pretty good. So it will be interesting to see. Uh, I think well, Shyamalan just saw Batman versus Superman. and was like, I could do better than that. Well, maybe. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, that's a franchise? He probably wrote it that night, but he was like, okay, I got to put this movie in between, though, to connect everything, so let's yeah. do that. Like, what the and, hell is that? And wrote a hell of a movie in Split, other than a few yeah. things. 
Uh, but speaking of that, let's get into our rankings. So, Andy, why don't you go first with your rankings? I think you have some strong feelings on these movies. Yikes. Um, yeah, probably. And I suspect maybe a little different than you guys. So my number one movie is Unbreakable. We might find some agreement there. I think overall, it's just a good movie. It's an M. Night Shyamalan movie that I really enjoyed. Uh, I think it sticks out better than the other two of being a movie you can rewatch uh, that like it, you know, um, you didn't lose too much from being a movie made in 2000. I could still enjoy it. Don't know um, if I could rewatch the other two movies again. Uh, the next movie, I'd say I actually like Glass better than Split. And I think it's because I'm going into it knowing that these are a trilogy. If Split was its own separate movie, not connected whatsoever, I might like it more. But the fact that this is the second act, basically, of a three part trilogy, um, I, I was not so much a fan of it. Uh, a lot of elements of it just didn't stick with me. The fact that it was like a Blumhouse production and I felt like that the whole time I was watching the movie kind of pulled me out of it. Uh, and there were a lot of things. I think it's the world building part. That's what I like about these stories is that it connects to some bigger universe. And we really got that in Glass. So I think those things, even the stuff I didn't like in Glass, um, didn't take me out from the movie enjoyment of it so much. And what I saw happening on screen was things like, ooh, I like that. Ooh, I like that. Ooh, I can see this going here. Um, and then Split just felt so different from everything else. And seeing it, on its own, maybe I'd rank it differently in some other kind of category or list. But with these, it was my my least favorite of the three. So I go Unbreakable, Glass, Split. Uh, what about you, Ted? Uh, you know, I'm probably going to go with the predictable ranking here. Uh, so I thought Unbreakable was the best. It's the most even movie, even though I, I don't like individual performances as much as I like them in certain other movies uh specifically david dunn he's a little weaker than the other two main characters in the next two movies but just as an overall movie uh the cinematography the way it was laid out uh the subtle hints as to what's happening throughout the entire thing it really works overall and it's a classic Shyamalan twist movie maybe not with the most uh heavy reveal of a twist but it, it follows that structure and it works pretty well in that structure then i'm gonna go split um you could argue uh, i i do think it's interesting andy that you put glass in front of split because you could make an argument that certain aspects of glass especially bringing everything together even though they struggled with certain aspects like giving each character equal time and doing great things with each character i think they did more things with glass than anybody uh but you could argue the structure of it was overall better than split but i think just the performance of james mcavoy and uh anna taylor don't know her last name um that those performances really stand out to me and elevate that just above class overall i i just can't say enough about james mcavoy playing in that movie probably like 10 characters at that point until we get to glass with the crammed in other ones and then glass uh mr glass stood out for me i think the overall plot was fine and uh you know that the the two reveals i do like the double twist that 
A, there's a secret society. Like, you knew Dr. Staple was nefarious, but you didn't know exactly what her thing was. And then uh, on top of that, you've got Price playing 40 chess all over them. And uh, really, like we said, setting up something that could go into the future. And I enjoyed that, but I, I think... Uh, the aspects of David Dunn and the the weirdness with having James McAvoy just like run through all the characters as if it's like an SNL reel, like show me all your characters, all your voices you can do. And it, some of those things just were weaker for me overall. And uh, yeah, that's it. One, two, three. Zach. I'm, I'm interested in your rankings. So I think I think Unbreakable is the strongest movie in the trilogy in terms of the way you know the, the direction cinematography i think like cinematically it's the strongest movie but i really enjoyed split more than i liked more than i enjoyed unbreakable um so my my ranking would go split unbreakable then glass okay because like i said at, at the very beginning of this un split i've actually rewatched more than once um, you know, my my wife and I really enjoy that standalone movie. I think it's it's my favorite to watch. Um, like I said, in the trilogy, I think Unbreakable is the strongest. Um, and and it, it, for for all of the reasons that we've already talked about, I mean, it really is a well made movie. Um, and then, you know, Glass is it's 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 actually a, a better movie than I gave it credit for, and I can attribute that to the discussion that we had today um, to talk about it. Because initially, you know, my my thoughts on it were weren't bleak, but it, I didn't think it was as strong as I as I've come to recognize some of its some more of its strengths after our discussion today. Um, but I still would rank that third is the weakest movie in the trilogy um though there were some some highlights uh for sure um you know sam jackson in in the glass character was was great um and and the seeing his through line um between unbreakable and glass um was my favorite part of of the trilogy as a whole so so those are my thoughts about the movies that's my ranking split unbreakable glass you know that's fair i i would say that even though I rank Unbreakable first, I'd probably rewatch Split more. In fact, I've seen Split a couple more times. So, yeah, I think it's a decent standalone if you ignore that it's in this series, but uh, in the series, Unbreakable for me. Um, well, that wraps it up. Uh, let's talk about what we're doing for next month. So we decided to kind of go a little lighter and do something that's more of a comedy we focused on these comic book movies, uh, young adult movies, stuff that's kind of self-serious, a lot of it. And as much fun as those are, uh, something light's always fun, too. So we're going with uh, the Bill and Ted trilogy. And I'm not only excited. Yeah, Andy's doing the air guitar. I'm not only excited because my name's Ted and finally I'm getting my due of having my name and a movie title. But... <laughs> just because they're super fun. I recently watched the the brand new one and I had a great time with it. So I'm excited to go revisit the other ones because I, I didn't watch them before that, uh, anticipating that we'd maybe touch on those at some point on the show. I'm super excited for it. Super excited. I like when I saw that idea get posted, um, 
I was like, well, I, I could get by with this one. And then when he agreed on it, the more I think about it, I love Bill and Ted. Uh, the second one, as I foreshadowed, the start of this thing is really out there and weird. And I haven't seen the third one yet. So I'm excited to do that for the podcast. But I love Bill and Ted, the first one. There are so many great movie moments in it. I can't wait to rewatch it. Yeah, it'll be a lot of fun. I've only seen the first one, so uh, I'm I'm excited to get into the rest of the series. Hell yeah. All right, well, this wraps it up for the Shyamalanaverse. Uh, they can trademark that if they want to. They can have it. I don't know if they've called it anything, but... They, they, call, it, they call it Unbreakable, etc. No. <laughs> <laughs> they know! That would be fantastic. It's called, like, the 117... Yeah, East Rail. Oh, the, one, the 177 or whatever? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, of course. Yeah, of that course. makes more sense, but I like Zach's better, so let's go with that. <laughs> I do like it. If we do revisit it, that's definitely what we're calling it. Unbreakable, et cetera. Absolutely. All right, well, thanks for joining me, guys, and uh, we'll see you guys on the next one next month. Peace. So long. Ah. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, find us on most podcast platforms like Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at Franchise Flicks for new episodes and other content. You can follow Andy on Twitch and Instagram at Darth Buckman and follow Zach on Twitter at underscore Zach Russo. Talk to you next time.